0: Your first Mother's Day. Congratulations. <laughs> I bet Dad cooked a special breakfast. He did. Oh, good job, Andrew. Good job. Righto. Okay, so um, the passage that we're up to, up to today, we've been working our way through First Timothy, and the passage we're up to today, it's not probably a common passage that you would choose for a Mother's Day. Um, Actually, it's probably not a common or a popular one for any church day. Um, I was thinking back over my life as a Christian and I cannot remember ever hearing a sermon in church on this piece of scripture. Uh, I've been in Bible studies where we've discussed it. Uh, I've listened to a recorded message or two on it. I've encountered this scripture in, in Christian books, but I cannot remember a time when I've heard it taught in a church on a Sunday. I suspect the reason for that is twofold. Uh, Firstly, it is very clear and it's very easy to understand some of it. Uh, The problem is what it's telling us we don't want to hear. And secondly, some of it is not easy to understand, especially when when we get to verse 15, uh, Bible scholars disagree on what Paul is really trying to say because he's not clear. Anyway, I grew up in a mainline denominational church and many of the mainline denominational churches preach through what they call the Revised Common Lectionary, right? It's a preaching plan that they have which cycles through a three-year cycle. And it gives a selection of readings each Sunday that theoretically, over the three-year cycle, you get to cover pretty much most of the Bible. And just for interest rate, interest interest rate. (laughs) I've been hearing that too much on the news lately, haven't I? Just for interest's sake, sake, I I, I downloaded the lectionary to see when this passage is covered, and it's not. Uh, It just so happens that that it's September this year where the lectionary cycle gets round to Timothy, Um, but while it's in Timothy, it only touches on three very small pieces of the whole letter. And so it concentrates on the bits that we do want to hear and it discards the majority of the letter that many don't want to hear. And so by the time we get to chapter two, in chapter two, it'll cover the first seven verses, which is about prayer. And that's what we covered a couple of weeks ago when we last together. And then it skips everything right through until part of the way into chapter six. And so be prepared. Uh, The next four chapters that we study uh, are going to be rarely heard ever in a church. Sometimes because people don't like to hear it, sometimes because it's a bit controversial, sometimes because it's not in the Revised Common Lectionary. Um, Now, some will be offended by what this says, but as it is the Word of God, we're not going to skip over it, uh, because if God has said it, we need to hear it and we need to learn from it. So we're gonna read it, we're gonna hear it, and we're gonna wrestle with it. Mind you, when I say wrestle, when I mean, what I mean by wrestling with the scriptures isn't that we're gonna twist and shape the scriptures to fit what we want them to say. When we wrestle with the scriptures, it, it's about us being shaped and formed and conformed to, to, what God, to God's perspective. So let's begin with prayer and then we'll read it. Heavenly Father, as we read this and as we study your word today, we begin by surrendering our hearts and our minds to you. Lord, we know that your word is perfect and true. We also recognize that at times our attitudes and opinions and even our convictions have been contrary to your word. And so this is what we surrender to you, our hearts, our attitudes, our minds, our opinions, and even our convictions. Lord, we ask today that you would help us to receive and to understand your word, and that you would bring us to a place where this isn't a reluctant acceptance, but a joyful enlightenment, that you would give us an aha moment where we see the beauty of your design for men and women in your creation and in your church. Lord, give us the love of Christ, Give us the mind of Christ and the humility of Christ. In Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8-15 to 15. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands, without anger or quarrelling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Righto. Now, as disciples of Jesus, we're called to a life of holiness, hey? Um, As God's holy people, uh, the way we live and the standards that we adhere to will be very different to the standards of the people of the world and and very different to the way they live. Holiness means that we relate to God differently. It means we relate to other people differently. It, It means the priorities in our lives will be quite different. The way we speak and what we say will be different. Even what we wear will be different. And so how we live will be different and even how we die will be different. So a couple of weeks ago, when we were last together, Paul was teaching us on prayer, and he finished off by saying uh, that, that when we pray, or more specifically, he's talking about when men pray, it should be in holiness. The phrase that he used was lifting up holy hands. And, and I said, look, it, that isn't about showing us. It's not like, oh, Lord, we beseech thee. Like, that's not what he means. The, the emphasis is on holy, on on having holy hands. So it's not about showiness. Our hands are to to be holy, so in other words, get rid of sin out of our our lives. So if I'm doing evil with my hands, and then I pray, or I pray, then there's something very wrong with this. And, And the characteristic of holiness when we pray and when we worship, he now carries that in to to address how this applies to women. Now, there really shouldn't be anything too controversial in this. If I was to summarize today's reading, it would be to say, let men be holy men and let women be holy women. And yet it does become controversial because different churches choose to interpret this passage in quite different ways. Right, so at one end of the spectrum, some might write, a, write it off altogether and say, oh, look, what, what you just read just then, you know, that, that, that's, that's from a bygone era. That, that's not even relevant to us anymore. Uh, so you might as well just tear those pages out of your Bible and just, just ignore them. That's how some people take that scripture. At the other end of the spectrum, uh, some will take every single word very literally And then choose to apply them in a way that that stifles and controls people. Um, And so in some churches, uh, women will be told what they are and are not allowed to wear. Um, In some churches, it is even forbidden from women speaking at all. And so I'm just going to start off today by saying I'm probably going to upset everyone. Uh, There's no doubt that, that some people, when they hear this message, they're gonna brand me as a legalist or a misogynist or you're just a male chauvinistic pig. Um, others might say, hear what I have to say and go, oh, you're a godless liberal, you don't even believe the Bible. Such is the road of anyone who has the faith to take the word of God seriously. So, the first characteristic of holiness in women that this letter addresses uh, is, is expressed in their appearance. Now, when we see photos these days of celebrity pastors and their husbands and their wives, are, you know, husbands and wives, that usually work together as a team. So when we see these photos of these celebrity pastors of well-known megachurches, we might generally get the image that somehow holiness is displayed with having a very glamorous, desirable image. Um, and for me this confirms why passages like this one really do need to be read and taught in churches once again. Because the glamour image of the celebrity pastor or the celebrity worship leader or whatever, this is the exact opposite of of what we as Christians should be about. We're not to be about the glamour image of look at me. Now, When I was a young kid, I know that's a long time ago, uh, going to school, I used to love the opportunity for those very rare uniform-free days. Do you remember the uniform-free days? Put up your hand if you liked them. Did you like the uniform-free days? Some of you did, some of you didn't. So I remember back in the day on on the TV shows, mostly American shows, we'd see these schools over in the US and and we'd think, wow, they never have to wear a uniform. And I thought that was a great idea. And yeah, we kids, why do we have to wear a uniform to school? But by the time I got to about mid-high school, I changed my mind on that. You see, on the uniform-free days, there was a noticeable divide between the haves and the have-nots. And it was something that was more prevalent amongst the girls than amongst the boys. Um, But it was the divide between the cool and the uncool. It was a divide between the glamorous and the unglamorous. It was a divide between those who knew that they were beautiful and knew how to work it and those who felt that they were ugly. And then when I became a parent, I understood even better why it is right for schools to have uniforms. Yeah, it does set a minimum standard of dress, but more importantly, it sets a maximum standard of dress. And now, I remember back to the uniform-free days at the Gundawindi State High School, and I remember my Indigenous classmates back then who didn't have anything else suitable to wear to school. And we used to think that, oh, Oh, mate, he, he forgot. It was a uniform-free day. Why would he turn up in his uniform? Because now we know that why that was. They hadn't forgotten at all. They, they didn't have any other clothes that weren't torn and tattered and worn out that, that they could wear to school. Now, that's 40-odd years ago, and things might have changed a bit by now. But back then, that was the case. But the question comes. It's Sunday morning. Ah. Oh. What am I going to wear to church today? Now, for most blokes, not all blokes, but for most blokes, that's a pretty simple choice. What am I going to wear to church today? Well, same thing I wore last week. It's just the way it is. And, and that's only because my wife won't let me wear my work clothes. Unless, of course, you're Scott or, or hello, um, Mr. Armstrong, who's listening at Norwin. You're probably in your work clothes too. Um, but, but women... And some blokes tend to take a bit more pride in their appearance and they like to make themselves look nice. So how should one dress when one comes to church? In respectable apparel, with modesty, with self-control, with what is proper for a woman who professes godliness and with good works. Do you notice here the manner of dress of Christian women, women who profess godliness, could well be very different to the fashion of the day. See, what Paul's teaching us here is we should spend more energy on our spiritual adornment than on our outer adornment. And our clothing and our manner of dress should reflect who we are in Christ. That's We shouldn't be trying to build some other kind of image by what we wear. And so when he says not to adorn oneself with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, it's not that there's anything wrong with having plaited hair. And it's not that there's anything wrong with having a bit of basic jewellery. What he's really on about here is don't become a showpiece. Don't come to church all dood up like a glamour model. Now, a legalist might look at this scripture and go, hmm, no pearls, okay, we'll wear emeralds. Or no braids, okay, well, m- my favourite movie star, she's got this really, really nice hairdo, I'll get that because there's no braids in that one. Or no costly attire, oh, I might repurpose that really hot dress that I found in Lifeline, didn't cost much, but man, it's hot right? That's how a legalist might treat this. And humanly speaking, the reason for that is is many of us have a desire to be desired. But you realise there's no point to that. God loves us without the bling. God loves us without the celebrity hairdo. He loves us without the designer labels. He loves us even if we're not sporting the latest eye device on our person. He loves us even if we're a bit pudgy, no comments. He loves us even if we've got scars and blemishes and freckles and pimples, God loves us. And he loves us even if we don't have that finely sculpted body. That we've always wanted and if we are to live a life of worship then what's suitable in church should be suitable in the rest of life right so he's not really saying to us oh just just wear a piece of sackcloth when you come to church and then bling yourself up as much as you like the rest of the week what he's really telling us is you don't need to bling yourself up And what a sad state the church is in when Christian programs have a tendency to focus on body image rather than the heart. And the attitude is, you know, if we can make a person look beautiful, then they'll feel beautiful and then we can connect them with God. Or if I can make them feel beautiful, then they'll feel loved and, and I've achieved my aim really what we should be teaching people and showing people is God loves me as plain as I am. God loves me as ugly and as fallen apart as I am. And God loves you as you are. You don't have to become the the beautiful, glamorous person for God to love you. All of your worth is demonstrated at the cross. Jesus died for you without you having to make yourself beautiful. And I find myself wondering, if Paul was to be writing this today, he'd probably actually be writing to some men as well. Because I don't know if you've noticed, but times are a-changing. And men can get quite caught up in their body image. Maybe it's always been a thing, I don't know. Uh, But it's becoming more and more prevalent in this insta-age, where people taking photos of all sorts of things and posting them for people to see. Now, in, in, in some church traditions, the, the image of the pastor's wife has always been the glamorous one. But in this day and age of image, we've now actually come into the era of the buff pastor. Have you noticed that in, in churches these days? It's the image. Of, I know you would have worked that out from your own pastor. Um, maybe not. But we've come into the era of the buff pastor, the bloke who wears the muscle T-shirt to highlight his buffiness. Is that, is that a word? Or is it buffness? I, I don't know. Buffiality. We'll just make all these words. To highlight his muscles, right? And, and I see these, some of these pastors and it's not that I get jealous, it just amuses me. And I think, man, how many hours a day or how many hours a week does that bloke have to spend in the gym, lifting and pumping and weights to, to keep his muscles in that sort of shape. And it, it's all about image. And just like the no uniform day at school, the cool kids, the beautiful people, excel in their image and it leaves others feeling inadequate. And yet some people continue to put forward the argument, ah, but it's my image that's bringing people to Jesus. If I've got this beautiful image, people want to be with me. They want to come to our church and they want to hear stuff. And and yes, they come to Jesus. But what sort of Jesus are they coming to? I was thinking about this. It's quite astonishing, really, out of all of the writings that we have about Jesus. What is there that actually describes to us what he looked like? What did Jesus look like? The only bit that I could really find is in Isaiah chapter 53 that said, he had no form or majesty that we should look to him and no beauty that we should desire him. That's the only description I could find of Jesus. Jesus was a very ordinary sort of bloke. He wasn't one of the cool kids. We wouldn't see Jesus strutting his stuff in his latest latest designer duds What Paul's really saying here is any form of ostentation, any form of showiness, it detracts from the whole purpose of worship. Whether it's the glamour model or whether it's the the muscle t-shirt, it detracts from the whole purpose of worship. Because whether for us it's about the image, whether it's about having some kind of inner desire to be desired, that has no place in worship because worship is all about less of self and more of him. We magnify him in our worship. We look to him and we praise him and we fade into nothing. And also, I believe the instructions he's giving here is also for the good of the whole church. As disciples of Jesus we are a people who willingly forego at times things that we see as our freedoms, and we we do that for the sake of the other. We forego some of the things that we see as our own freedoms for the sake of the other. And so when Paul says women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty, he doesn't actually say this, but I think we need to understand that this is also for the sake of others, when a young lady wears a revealing outfit that causes men to admire her in ways that they should not, uh, some women are totally ob- oblivious to the effect that they have on men and that the way that they address affects men. Um, some women are very aware of this fact and they do it anyway because it gives them, it, it help, they feel good that somebody likes to, to admire them. But for the sake of the weaker brother, for the sake of, of one who could be led into temptation, to dress respectably and with modesty is the loving thing to do. Wearing a, a low-cut top or a short skirt or a figure-hugging outfit or, or the bare midriff, none of that helps a bloke to worship God in holiness. And, and while that might be the fashion of our peers, holiness means that we dress in a manner that helps our brothers and sisters in Christ with their holiness. But it's not only about appearances. It's not just about what one wears. It's also about attitudes of the heart. And that's why he says to clothe ourselves with with self-control and good works. It, It is to be spiritually adorned rather than an adornment of appearances. Righto, so let's move on now. Uh, In verse 11, we move now onto the field of holiness in learning, teaching, and authority. Now, in some cultures, including first-century pagan cultures, of which Ephesus was in that culture, and, and Timothy's in Ephesus, Uh, Women generally weren't allowed to be educated. It was the men who did the learning, and in some places of the world that continues today. So look at the Taliban. Uh, The Taliban forbid women from being educated. In Afghanistan, while the United States and and its coalition partners helped to contain the Taliban, women were able to have the opportunity to be educated and and it was good for them. They could learn and study, but when all of a sudden the troops were withdrawn and the Taliban returned to power, at that point they actually said, oh no, girls will still be allowed to go to school, they can still get their education, They were lying through their teeth. It hasn't happened. We knew that it wouldn't happen. But in the Christian church, even in a culture where it was uncommon for women to learn, in the Christian church, they are able to learn. So let's take this verse one at a time. Verse 11. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. And all means with the highest degree of submissiveness. But what is that? To be submissive is not a rule that one is forced to obey. To be submissive is an attitude of the heart. It is a voluntary willingness on the part of the woman. And so it's not a rule that anyone can enforce. It's not a rule that somebody can make happen. It's an act of holiness in response to God. In Ephesians chapter 5, which was written to this same church, we're told to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And and so submission, it's not something that only women do. We men should be well-versed in submission. We are to submit to one another. Husbands and wives submit to one another. People within the church submit to one another. And we submit to Christ out of reverence to Christ. But in this case, where we're talking now, we each have different areas in which we submit. And in this case, women submit to quietly learning. In verse 12 then, Paul explains how he applies this. He says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, some pe- that, that'll get some people's hackles up pretty pretty high. Um, and And the reason that the hackles go up is because some people read that and go, right, see there, it says there that women should remain silent in church. They should say nothing. But let me clarify what he is saying and what he is not saying. He's talking about teaching and exercising authority over men, right? So when we gather together for church, there's men and women together, the whole congregation. And so in that setting, it's not the right setting for a woman to be giving the teaching or exercising authority. What he's not saying is that women shouldn't teach at all. He's just saying that women shouldn't be teaching men. And he's also not saying that women have to be completely silent in church. He's talking about being silent in the context of teaching so if a man is teaching, the women shouldn't be interrupting and saying, you know, hang on, I think it actually means this. Um, but why? Why does he come to this decision? Now, now, the easy way around this that some people like to take is they say, oh, it's just a cultural thing. In their culture, it was unseemly for a woman to be teaching a man, and so they shouldn't do it. But in our culture, it's not a problem. So that's the... the, the, the Argument that some people use. But, but the problem with that is that's not the reason that Paul gives. Paul gives a theological reason, and it's to do with God's ordering of creation. Verse 13, he says, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Um, so when we, when we look back to the creation of, of humans, Adam was created first. And Eve was created as a help for Adam. She was taken out of Adam. But then in Genesis, it's only a few verses after this that we see a reversal in the role of leadership. And it was disastrous. Verse 14 says, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, I just want to clarify here. We're not saying Adam's off the hook, right? We're not saying that it was all Eve's fault. Adam sinned, and Adam bears the responsibility for his sin. You see, Paul's reason is that on the basis of God's created order, men should be the ones who teach. And then he illustrates this with an example of what happened at the fall. So if we go to Genesis chapter 3, it says, And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Right? Adam knew what God had said. He was very well aware of God's word on this matter. Do not eat from that tree. But Adam failed be the leader that God had created him to be. It was Adam's responsibility to say to Eve, no Eve, remember God said this, God said do not eat from that tree, we cannot do it. Adam failed to be the leader that his wife needed him to be. And it's the same problem we see in the church often today. It's becoming more and more common for the teachers in church to be women. Why? It's because men have failed in the responsibility that God has given us to fulfill. And it starts way before someone becomes a pastor. And so today's message on this Mother's Day is as much to the men as what it is to the women. But let me be very clear about what this message is not. The message is not men lorded over the women and forced them into submission. That is not godly. The message to men is to step up and to be the loving, sacrificial, spiritual leader that God has called you to be. Husbands, God's design is for you to step up to spiritual leadership in your home. But guess what? For you to be a spiritual leader means you yourself have to be close to God. You have to know God. You have to love God. You have to be regular and fervent in prayer. You have to love God's Word, not just read His Word occasionally, but study His Word. And you have to be growing closer and closer to God all of the time. Because if you are to be a leader, then you have to be heading in the right direction. And if you are not getting closer and closer to God, you cannot lead your family closer to God. Because if you are drifting away from God, if you're just away in la-la land and going, oh yeah, I've got a faith, but it really doesn't mean that much, You are going to lead your family astray. The problem is that rather than step up, most men go, big job, big job. And we just drop the ball. And the women put us to shame because they are growing closer to God and good on them. Be encouraged, women. Keep growing closer to God. Love God more and more every day. Love other people. Read his word. Pray. Seek God. But while they're growing closer to God, by default, the default of men, the women become the leaders, the spiritual leaders in the home, You getting this, men? It is by our default that this is happening. Now, most Christian women, not all, but most Christian women I know crave for their husbands to step up and know God better and to love God more and be the leader of spiritual leader in their family. Most women I know crave that. Men, they want you to do it. But when men men are not serious about their faith and when men are not growing closer to God, when that's not our priority, that's when things get reversed. So there might be some men here who, when they read this passage of Scripture, think, hang on, Michael, but my wife, she knows the Bible better. My wife, she's more articulate. My wife is better at teaching. She's a lot more patient than I am. And oh, she's got more time than me. I just don't have the time to do what you're talking about. My answer is make the time. Make the time. What could possibly be more important in your life than growing closer to God? Think about that for a moment. What could possibly more important in your life than growing closer to God and becoming a man who can lead your family closer to God? And the answer to that is nothing. Nothing. True worship is for us to devote ourselves to him. You as I read God's Word, I don't read too much in the Scriptures telling us to work harder, work longer, do what you can to get ahead. Our call, our main calling is to be devoted to our Lord. And if anything that I fill my life up with means that my devotion is to something other than to God, then something needs to change. And if you're sitting here today, realising that there is something in your life that that is taking your devotion, more so than your devotion to God. You know that something needs to change. So God's created order is for men to teach. And so the practice in the church should be that, that women are not teaching men. And so I'm gonna ask the women today to encourage the men. Wives, encourage your husbands to lead and to teach. Start them off at home. Enco- when your husband wants to sit down and watch the telly and the kids, uh, when it comes to bedtime for the kids, get, ask your husband to read, this, read a Bible with the kids and to pray with the kids and give them room to do that. We now come to another controversial verse, verse 15. Yet she will be saved through childbearing, if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Oh, that gets some women's hackles up too. A um, bit abstract, this verse. Now, different people apply this in different ways. This is a verse that I I said, it's really not a clear verse, this one. Uh, Some people will apply it to Eve because he's talked about Eve a little bit earlier. And they'll say, well, through the childbearing of Eve, she brought, it was into Eve's line that the Messiah was born. And so it was through through Jesus that that we're saved. I, I actually think that's grasping at straws unnecessarily so. Others take it quite literally, and so they bear as many children as they can because this is God's plan and purpose for my life, to drive a minibus full of kids. Um, but be aware that whilst childbearing is a good thing, if, if we have the attitude that that's what somehow brings us closer to God, that, that can be really hurtful to women who are not able to bear children. Really hurtful. And and we know that it's not through giving birth that a woman is saved. It's through the cross and through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. No one can be saved any other way. And bearing children doesn't make a woman any more saved or any more loved than God. So loved by God than any woman who is childless. I simply see verse 15 as giving us an example of something which is distinctly feminine, women do not be ashamed of your femininity. Is that, it's a hard word to say, femininity. It's it's bizarre that we live in a culture now where big news, a reporter asks asks a politician, "Please tell us your definition of a woman." oh, it's a very tough question to answer. How is that a hard thing? In the beginning, God created them man and woman. He made us distinctly different. It's not that hard. And God has created men to be men and he's created women to be women. Women, never be ashamed of your femininity. God has created you to be a woman. And it's saying that, that holiness for a woman is for her to be distinctly what a woman is. Childbearing is something that a man cannot do. It's the domain of a woman. God has ordained it this way. And so for women to honour God, they do it by not stepping into the domain of a man. Don't, if you're a woman, don't try and be a man. If you're a man, don't try and be a woman, it's simple. And and as a woman, he says, who continues in faith and love and holiness with self-control. right? This this is by which we are saved. We continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Continue in faith and being holy. Women as women, men as men. And so men... Being holy is about being devoted to God in such a way that our faith and our knowledge of God is firmed up and growing stronger and stronger each day in such a way that we can actually teach. And women being holy women is about being a woman in all the beautiful, creative uniqueness that God has designed you to be. God has designed you this way and to continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Happy Mother's Day to the mums. The best Mother's Day gift that the dads can give to the mums is grow closer to God, be the man that God has called you to be and love your wife as Christ loves the church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your wisdom and for your good design. Lord, we thank you for the way that men and women need each other. Lord, our prayer is that our families and, and in this church that, that we could live lives of holiness, honouring you in the way that you have designed us to be. Lord, we pray that men would grow in their love and knowledge of you and and that that we would be the leaders that you've called us to be, sacrificial leaders, giving of ourselves for the sake of others. And we pray that that women also would grow in the knowledge and love of you, being the beautiful, wonderful creation that, that you have designed them to be, never feeling that they're second best, but having a holiness and a beauty that that isn't an outward adornment, but a spiritual adornment of faith, love, holiness, and self-control. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.